Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, we'll be talking to Joe Essid and Brian McTague about their edited collection, Writing Centers at the Center of Change, published by Routledge in 2020. Change is going to come, and change is here, because the many ways we do things now are not the many ways we did things then. The decades of the 1960s and the 1970s were then, the time when writing centers first set up en masse in the basements of English departments on campuses across the U.S., because yes, the writing center is American. Writing centers had soon proved themselves, because having writing center practice with the peer tutoring and with the guiding through and not the deciding for, because having such writing center practice was better for writers, and still is, than having no writing center practice at all. However, in those early days of the writing center, tutors and directors alike had a load of challenges to face and a lot of grief and frustration to face down. Basically, the writing center was cast in doubt, if not cast aside, by other departments, by administrations, by pretty much everyone except those who had benefited from writing center practice. Students who knew their writing centers have always been the best advocates and advertisers of their writing centers. So add to then 30 or so years in time until the early 2000s, and you see change accelerate because research accelerated. The research was labeled, amongst other things, writing studies, rhetoric and composition, writing research, English for specific purposes, and the findings, among other things, were the products of writing the processes of writing, the situations of writing, and the communities of writers. The practitioners at writing centers and the practice of writing centers became professional. Writing center practitioners and writing center practice, even in many cases, became different. The educational backgrounds of the practitioners covered, next to English, of course, education science, applied linguistics, communication studies, And also the accepted methods of operation in the writing center were being data collected, data analyzed, data evaluated, so that here too changes have come. And there was this too. The U.S. writing center was by the 2000s no longer unique. Europe and elsewhere had taken up and were taking up the idea of a writing centering, putting it into their practice. More changes, more change. But one constant and all these 50 or more years of writing center history, the constant which writing center practitioners and writing center practice constantly have faced and still face now, the constant as definitive as the variable C in physics, that is, so that it can serve as a benchmark in any writing center, the constant which is the idea at that Joe Essid and Brian Mittag used to open their edited collection, Writing Centers at the Center of Change, this constant is service. At whatever institute a writing center opens, that writing center stands always next to the academic and the administrative portions of the institute. This next to, or as the contributor in the collection Maureen McBride puts it, this apart from, is the essence of every writing center because it is the essence of the servant. Now, service service is no bad calling to heed, and good service makes our best experiences in life better. 
Nonetheless, it hardly needs pointing out that the servant and his or her service, in the best of cases, go underappreciated, and in the worst or worst of cases, the service is cut back and the servant is sent away. However, it is worth pointing out, as do so many contributors to writing centers at the center of change, that to stand next to is also to stand with, or again, in Maureen McBride's phrasing, to stand next to is also to be a part of. It is not too heady a claim to say, in fact, that the academic and the administrative portions of institutes thrive in direct proportion to the quality of their services. How could be otherwise? Writing centers at the center of change tells stories of change from the many perspectives of people now working at writing centers, and in the many places where writing centers are now working. It's all change all the time, much of it for the worse, much of it for the better, and this contradiction in logic is no contradiction in fact, as the chapter authors and the collection editors show. Writing centers truly are at the center of change and are two centers of change. The editors, Joe Essett and Brian Mittag, are themselves writing center directors and writing studies researchers. Brian McTague is director of the Virginia Commonwealth University Writing Center, as well as vice president and president-elect of the Southeastern Writing Center Association, SWCA. Brian researches to know just how students of writing centers, and especially students as writing consultants, can become exceptional academics and professionals. In 2018, Brian hosted the SWCA Conference on Writing Centers in Transition, which we all know is another word for change. And the topic proved a perfect fit since, as Brian tells me, both both professionally and personally, change has been a constant in his life. The SWCA conference was also where his collaboration with Joe struck root. Joe Essid has directed the Writing Center at the University of Richmond for nigh on 30 years. Joe co-designed the first year seminar program, where two interests of his have found expression preparation of high school students for college writing, and science fiction. The theme of Richmond's first year seminar is the space race, and the genre of Joe's personal writing is speculative fiction. Joe's research has been published in anthologies and journals, and his teaching has reached across disciplines. So let's begin today's episode. Joe Essid, Brian McTague, Writing Centers at the Center of Change. Joe, Brian, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you. Thank you. Um, great. I, I would like to hear from each of your uh, perspectives how the, I, I briefly referred to it, uh, it was at a conference that perhaps the, the idea germinated, but uh, could you perhaps give us uh, your stories of how the book came about, how your editorships of this book came about? Sure. Jo- Joe actually had the seed uh, at a conference about a year before mine. So he could speak a little bit more about that, but uh, we've been colleagues in uh, the Virginia chapter of the Southeastern Writing Center Association since about 2014, I believe. And um, I think when I had hosted the conference, um, Writing Centers in Transition, as you said, transition is just another word for change. Uh, it got Joe to thinking about his experience at a previous concert, uh, a conference the year before, and we just started talking about how writing centers really seem to be in a state of constant flux, you know, in part due to the nature of the work we do. 
we see different students all the time. We even our staffs who are mostly students as well um, change constantly as well because they can only stay until they graduate. You know, so there's there's always movement going on. Uh, Joe can tell you a little bit about how his his shifted physically. You know, uh, mine. Uh, my own writing era shifted physically in 2015 when we got we're lucky enough to move into a brand new building and a really beautiful space that we're currently in now. Yeah, I could talk briefly about where this began. In 2017, I chaired a panel at the Conference on College Composition and Communication at Portland, Oregon, and I had a really distinguished group of co uh, co presenters. Ben Rafeth, who many of the listeners will know from his work with English language learners at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and Shireen Grogan, who at that time was president of the International Writing Center Association. I'd approached people about the scope of change at their writing centers online, and they, they bit, and we decided to do this panel in which, we, as we put it, we were addressing new challenges to writing center pedagogy and autonomy. The sense we had, and we didn't have any empirical data at that point, was that writing centers were suddenly on the radar of administrators at the senior level. And from being the ignored proofreading shop in the basement, which really we never were, we might have been in the basement, but we weren't really proofreading shops. From that humble beginning, we had suddenly become a contestable and contested commodity that there was value in teaching writing to first years in particular, but to students across the curriculum and across their four years at traditional institutions uh, or to adults. And so we wanted to get a sense from our audience, what sort of changes were happening on your campus in response to this impetus from above quite often to bring writing into the mainstream, which sounds good, but were, were these changes being integrated with the learning commons, coming into the library physically, having a change in reporting lines for directors or the change in their academic status. Were these things dangerous or were they hopeful? What, what conclusions could we draw? And from that conference presentation, I decided to write a book proposal. And Shireen accepted uh, my invitation because her situation was very interesting, what happened to her at a private for-profit university. Uh, she accepted my invitation as a chapter uh, to write a chapter and several other colleagues from around the world did as well. And I approached Brian. I said, Brian, you know a lot about this. Let's work on this together and uh, let's get some uh, more authors to give us some sense of the scope of change and responses to change because we knew change was happening. We just didn't know to what degree and whether it was going to hurt or harm writing centers. Yeah, that's, um, a really interesting point about the fact that, let's say, the last, what, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 10 to 15 years at administrations from above who had never visited basements were now currently interested in what was happening in those basements were, as you say, looking at the value of writing instruction. Is there, were you ever able in these uh, conferences and discussions to be able to put your finger on what had changed? Why was it that they were becoming alerted to something that had been going on for so long? Brian, why don't you answer that? I'm going to think about my answer because this is this changes over time itself as I learn more about the history of writing instruction on American American campuses. Right. And I think 
I think one of the things I learned is that the change is very multifaceted and can look different for different writing centers for different directors. Um, a lot of it depends on the support you have from upper leadership at a university, you know, which I've always been very, very lucky to have uh, the highest level of support from upper leadership at VCU. And they seem to intrinsically understand the value of the work that we do and offer the students. But that's not always the case. And we learned that very quickly from a lot of colleagues, um, such as uh, Shireen. And it was, it kind of shakes you a little bit because, you know, for me personally, I, you know, I have all this support. I was like, well, what if the leadership changes and we don't have that support anymore? Because that's, you know, that's one of the storylines that we, that we've heard uh, multiple times. Yeah, I think that's quite important that we live in a very small world of writing centers, and that may have blinded us to larger changes beyond our writing center offices. There's, this is a, a time in the United States where even at public institutions, there's a corporate mindset and marketing of the services is very important. That, of course, can work for us because, as I often tell my students and my colleagues, no one in my experience of th more than 30 years of this has said, students write great. We don't need a writing program. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for someone to say that. I've never heard it. Instead, the <laughs> question becomes, who, yeah, <laughs> never going to happen, never going to happen. So who, who, so who is responsible for the instruction of writing? And that, that story has changed at VCU. At Richmond, we've moved to a first-year seminar program away from first-year composition. I was the final director of our first-year comp program. We did that as humanely as possible. It was taught by adjuncts. Uh, they were all laid off, but they, they knew it was coming. And uh, we helped them find other work. But there's an example of, of, a, of a change that hurt some people. But at the, after that point, we put writing in the first year in the hands of our faculty, our tenured faculty across the curriculum who proposed and taught FYS. And the writing center was front and center in that because our writing consultants were paired and still are paired with those faculty members. So change is happening. The question is, who is responsible for addressing the concerns faculty and administrators have about student writing? And how, do, how does the university market that service to potential students and their parents? So that's interesting that you mentioned, and, and this is also, um, as I've understood, Joe, one of your uh, areas of re uh, research and special interest, this managed university, I think uh, you've called it in certain places, you mentioned this corporate mindset. It would seem then that that was uh, one of the triggers for administrations or higher ups to then notice the writing work that was going on outside of specific departments in writing centers or, or across disciplines. Uh, how do those, if, if I could just pry there a bit, how, how do you see those two things matching up? I have a good relationship with our administration. And so this is not a kiss and tell story. We, um, we now have integrated the writing center more fully into the other work done by service units at the university. And it's been pleasant because our provost office consulted with us. We've talked to our university librarian. We have a steady source for budget for, uh, paying our writing consultants. That's been a happy story. But what can happen at other schools, and, and this happened 
both in Shireen's case by executive fiat and in Gert Brower's case, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name halfway right, but in Gert's case, it happened because the EU changed a, a mandate for a type of educational program. And so all the work he had done locally at Freiburg went out the window, all the partnerships with local schools. So it wasn't even at his university, but it was at a much higher level in the European Union. So these, uh, these negative changes can come from above. Rarely, and I don't think you'll see this in any of our chapters, have they come from the trenches where faculty are teaching. I, I've never heard of a case where the faculty rose up and said, the writing center isn't doing its job, get rid of it. I'm certain that's happened somewhere, but it didn't happen in the 11 chapters that we include in the anthology. Is is that then um, to say that uh, writing as a, let's say, professional skill or as a skill for um, student retention or a skill for student completion is something that maybe um, administrations then noticed and wanted them to support? Um, I'm clearly not talking in any one specific case here at uh, either in the chapters or, or your two positions, but uh, from all the contact that you've had with uh, people in this uh, area of work, if you've been able to maybe piece together what it is that uh, about yeah, 10 to 15 years ago changed so that writing centers somehow became more interesting for administrations. I think that's true. I mean, certainly the, you know, the ever uh, evolving nature of technology and being that so much work is done online now, I think it's become quite clear that writing skills are really important, regardless of what field you're in. You know, and I, I suspect that's become even more true over the last year with the pandemic and so many people working from home and needing to communicate very often in the, by using the, you know, write the written form. So I think um, I think that's part of it, you know, that it, there's also it's, we also know that students and everyone really write more than they ever have in any point in history, you know, on a daily basis with even with something like tweeting or texting, you know, yes, different posting, posting online, you know, so it's quite clear that writing is a big part of everyone's life. But I think the question is always, how can we translate what students do on social media and when texting their friends and uh, into strong work, academic written work, you know, because there obviously is a big difference between the two. I, I, I'll add something to that about the impetus from outside the university. We have heard from employers in our area that our, our students write pretty well. So that's our case on the ground. But what I hear from colleagues is that companies that are hiring graduates are saying we want them to be really good writers and we want them to also be able to be able to present orally as well our administrators our trustees hear this and it becomes a positive reinforcement to beef up the writing curriculum in some way and so what are our names we're writing centers we're the center for writing that isn't lost on people who do marketing i think that this outside pressure to make sure that students write better for the workplace has played a big part in 
senior administrator saying, hey, what can we do at the curricular level? What can we do at the student support level to help our graduates excel? And that's an altruistic motive, but also it markets the university. And, and in that aspect, that's a good part of the man, what I call the managed university. I think that, that we should respond to the pressures from outside our walls when they're of that nature. So because we want our students to do well when they finish. That seems to resonate very I much. Think, so, oh, sorry, Brian. Yes. No, I was just going to say across the board, I think um, help making sure that universities are helping students be as prepared as possible for the workforce. I mean, that's always been the goal, but I think it seems more urgent these days. Uh, career services are things that are really uh, flourishing right now on campuses, uh, including our own. And I think there is, to some extent, pressure from parents and their and the students to make sure that students are will be able to find a job, you know, uh, preferably, of course, in their field when they when they graduate. The international component of this is that in in the United States, we until the pandemic, we enrolled so many English language learners increasing numbers of them, especially from, from the People's Republic of China. Many of these students needed assistance with their writing. And so this ELL population also added fuel to this fire to let's see what we can do in the curriculum to make sure all of our students do as best they can with written and oral communication. And you see these goals again and again. You also see terms in administrative documents around the country that come from Andrea Lunsford's term at Stanford a culture of writing. How do we build a culture of writing on our campus? That's front and center in our uh, proposed curriculum that's under review right now. And it's been, been in our strategic plan. So this is, this is something from the highest levels at our universities and colleges. That is a key Absolutely. word, the, the cult, culture of writing. And um, I have come across Lundford's work in, in that respect as well. And it's a term that immediately made sense to me. And it's been something that in my early days here at the Heidelberg uh, writing program, I've been looking to try to establish. But I can imagine that for many listeners, a step or two outside of the writing center world would sort of scratch their heads at a term like that, a, a culture of writing. <laughs> um, I, I think you see where I'm going. Is, is, yeah, yeah. Could, we put, could, could we sort of set any criteria for what that would look like, make any descriptions of how that culture works or what it feels like to be inside of it? Is there anything that you could add uh, to that idea? Brian, it, it may, we, Brian and I may have very different answers. I w- I, mine is fairly brief, that a student learns what it means to write for academic audiences early on and then gets to practice those skills and their, their linked set of skills, gathering information, making claims worth making, asking questions worth asking, uh, writing with some nuance and, and having a, a merger of their personal voice with whatever the discipline demands. So they encounter that early on and then they practice it in a variety of settings throughout their college career, including perhaps at a school like Richmond, the chance to work with a faculty member on some research and publish that research. That's an enormous boon for a student who's going into the workplace or graduate work. So we're thinking about a series of engagements throughout their four years at Richmond. And I, I take it that's what Andrea meant at Stanford as well. Brian, what, what, would it, what would it mean to you, a culture of writing? I think, you know, I think it's important to 
to note that uh, my university is really different. We're a urban, a public urban research university, you know, uh, with a highly diverse uh, student population. So one of the things that's important for us at, at our writing center and to really foster a sense of across campus is the idea of encouraging students to be able to develop their own authentic voice, their own personal voice while working within academic writing. So it's, that's not to say is, you know, if they, they should translate exactly how they speak into their written work, because that's not always going to work, certainly for academic work, but to somehow uh, find a way to incorporate their ideals and uh, things that are unique about them as a student, a thinker, a writer into their academic work. Yeah, um, I suppose I'll add on my own little uh, <laughs> definition of how I've understood it so far and, and perhaps also prompt a, a response or two or a thought or two. Um, I, I've, I did an interview with a um, with uh, Cooper Union in New York um, and their Center for Writing, which is uh, directed by uh, Kit Nichols. And he said to me that they think of themselves as a thinking center. And that strong connection that he made to the ability to think and the ability to write really resonated with me. And I thought that for a culture of writing, that would mean that writing is just as much as chemistry, is just as much as biology, and go down the whole line of disciplines, a part of the university as any other. And it belongs to an ability of, uh, let's say, academic thought, academic research, and the ability to uh, critically look at problems and find workable solutions or even theoretical solutions before workable solutions. So, I mean, that, that and, and, and for that to be fostered, for that culture to come about, because a culture is never a thing that you can, I mean, I hardly need to tell you that, never a thing that you can put your finger on. It, it's it's something that you breathe in and breathe out. Um, I've understood basically that you try to teach writing, you try to provide for writing, and you try to support writing. Teaching writing is, I think, probably fairly clear. Providing for writing is being, especially now in our online world, um, being there with, um, let's say, other materials that are outside of classes, be it uh, places where forums can occur, be it uh, podcasting or videos uh, where writing is talked about or students themselves talk about writing. And in the support area, I would see it as uh, faculty or the researchers um, know where to go when there's a question concerning publication, concerning um, assignments concerning exams and so on. Um, and that places the writing center or the writing professionals at a university. So for me, and this is somewhat theoretically because it's not yet established in Heidelberg, <laughs> for me, that would be a culture of writing. I like that definition. The, the difficulty we would have on our campus is that one person can't do all that. And we now have a faculty hub with faculty members doing teaching development for their colleagues. I would say that supporting faculty on my campus, although I do some individual consultations with faculty, especially when they're, they're working with our consultants and they have questions about an assignment or about how to give students feedback, I would say that on my campus, providing what you're talking about at Heidelberg would fall on our faculty hub and that that puts the, 
the burden of writing on several shoulders. I don't think at a school as big as VCU or even a smaller school at Richmond, we have 3,200 undergraduates and a large number of non-traditional students. I just don't think one human being can do that. So uh, the, the, the culture of writing would include several people who are responsible for, they talk to each other, of course, they're responsible for fostering that culture. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, you know, we have at VCU, the Center for Teaching and Learning Excellence, and they help faculty with uh, things like you were mentioning, you know, like information on how to get published and that sort of thing. They hold faculty workshops um, and we help them a lot. We partner with them rather. Um, it's a collaborative effort. You know, I've offered uh, workshops with them on topics such as uh, giving facilitated feedback to students. Just feedback that will actually help students grow as a writer rather than just seeing all the grammatical errors they made, that sort of thing. Um, I'm hoping to do one on developing writing assignments, you know, because a lot of times instructors will give a writing assignment and a student isn't even quite sure what's asked of them or what the writing expectations are. So um, I think that's it's fertile ground for writing centers to collaborate with these different units, but definitely cannot do it all on our own. You know, our writing center is myself as the director and then a coordinator um, underneath me. And we already do a lot, you know, and so a lot of it is just figuring out how we can help other units, you know? Yeah. Uh, that, that's uh, that's why I, I tried to stress there at the end the fact that this is uh, somewhat in theory. <laughs> I, I do very much agree with right. the idea. I do very much agree with the idea that this this is going to involve a team. <laughs> I'm looking for that team at yes. the moment, but um, but at least in theory, let's say it, it sounds like it um it makes sense. Uh, you bring up uh, and the, Brian, yes, please. Yeah, uh, yeah. There there are models where the writing centers are like that. You know, there's a successful one at Eastern Kentucky university led by uh, rusty carpenter. And he very much has uh, a, a large unit that uh, does do most of what we were talking about. So. We'd hope to get rusty mm-hmm. for, uh, to write a chapter for us, I believe at one point. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's, that, that brings us to the chapters. In fact, um, uh, in fact, it, the, the book is divided into uh, parts. We've got new spaces, new missions, and then interestingly, contested missions and contested spaces. <laughs> I, I wonder, did that structure, uh, was that applied afterwards or was that a structure that you would, had hoped to fill? I think we applied that afterward, if I remember correctly. Now, part of that, we Brian, did. doesn't part of that de- develop out of something we said in the introduction? I'm inherently a pessimist. That is a person who expects the worst and is often pleasantly surprised when he is wrong. And Brian identifies himself as an optimist. So I, I think uh, part of that last section belong, really belongs to my dim worldview. It was a great balance, though. You know, I think one of the reasons we worked so well together on this and we're, you know, we're really able to stress the the differences and, you know, the good and the bad um, was because we we have these uh, alternate worldviews, I suppose. 
Yeah, that was that was a wonderful um, uh, touch in the introduction where uh, we had uh, the two faces of <laughs> of the project. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was very good. Um, yeah, and it does sort of come to a resolution in a sense. I mean, you've got these new missions, and then you've got these contested missions, and you've got both sides of it. Um, per- perhaps we can give a bit of chronology to what we might cover, so that we can at least dip into each of the chapters and and begin at the spaces. We talk about libraries, we talk about um, learning commons, and we talk also about online. Um, online being, yeah, the all prevalent uh, educational means nowadays. Um, I was quite interested to see that, uh, for instance, libraries, which have also been redefining themselves, this comes out in the chapter by Maggie Herb and Lindsay Sabatino, uh, have, uh, which have also sort of redefined themselves as, as, as dep- uh, repositories for information to sort of discovery centers, yeah, a bit more along the lines of, as we see museums from, say, the 1980s to now 2021, what they would look like, I would imagine, is uh, the sort of transformation that we're looking at. And um, the huge jump in uh, collaboration, physical collaboration between writing centers and libraries from t- uh, 2003, the number was about 16% of uh, writing centers were located inside of libraries. 2013, 45%. So we're speaking somewhere around that's half right. that's probably right. now. Um, that's, that's a bit of a boom. Um, I wonder what's going on there. Or if uh, you could perhaps uh, speak about that one. Brian, yeah, I think a lot of it does come from you're next door to the library. We're we're literally within it. You're in it, yeah. Well, not, exactly. this, not this semester, I think, uh, but, uh, but normally. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I think libraries have become identified as one of the hubs on campus. Very often, it is you know the heart of campus where students uh, really congregate the most. Not only to in a social way, but also in an academic way. You know, they get together to study at the library and stuff like that to work on projects. So I think a lot of libraries um, sort of became this sort of almost a learning commons kind of thing, you know, and, or learning commons are within library, a lot of libraries these days, you know, because students do congregate there so much, it made sense if a library was going to be uh, refurbished or a new library is going to be built to put like so all these services that students use and are similar in one location. That, that's very much the description of what we're doing on our campus. The library is centrally located. We importantly have a good coffee shop there and that didn't used to happen. And, and I, that, that sounds small, but that notion that the library is a, not only a depository for books or a place you go to meet with a reference librarian, but a social space for academic work and making academic work publicly visible that's that's largely behind what we've done at our library and I, i'm i'm excited about that our our consultants we only have one little office it's not in the basement it used to be in the basement of the library that's where we began we moved upstairs to the collaborative study area and our consultants there's 60 of them they can't all be in one office they meet writers there and they move throughout the library when i was asked by the university librarian along with several other directors of learning skills units, what our model was. Many of them were talking about, we need X number of offices, we need this and that and the other. And I said, I need one room and a bunch of signs and good Wi-Fi because we're going to fill your library like a gas. 
We're going <laughs> to, the signs will just say, I'm Joe, I'm your writing consultant. And the student will know generally where Joe is and go to find him. And it might be on the second floor of the library outside of the quiet area. It might be in the basement with some of the books. It might be at the coffee shop. That way, that reinforces that idea of the culture of writing. We're everywhere. People do writing everywhere. I, I didn't want to think in certain, now our speech center had special needs because they need certain equipment to, to be able to record speeches. I could understand that. But if you think too much in terms of I need 17 offices to have this many appointments and I need this many square feet, I think you're, you're hopelessly stuck in the mid-20th century. And it's time to yeah, think about a- their service instead. Yeah, and that's exactly the thing. That's the beauty that writing offers. Um, it it is so portable, isn't it? I mean, you've just talked about sitting, kicking back on a couch in a in a coffee shop or uh, somewhere between the stacks in a library. Um, if you can get two people together, and not even necessarily physically, <laughs> it's right. enough, right? I mean, uh, the exchange there happens to a great degree on the screen. Um, less so nowadays on the page, but. Uh, the text, no matter our um, our pedagogical approach or even our theoretical approach, the text still attracts most attention, doesn't it? So drawing eyes to the screen or to the page is is not a bad thing, and that doesn't demand a heck of a lot, right? Especially no. with portable devices nowadays. Everybody has a laptop on my campus or a tablet, and we've seen in my own first-year seminar class this semester with the pandemic, I have them in, because it's a space race class, and that's the theme of my own class, we have... 40 different topics. But in the space race class, I divided them into mission teams, giving them the, the uh, named each team after a famous Apollo, a famous NASA program. So we've got Apollo, Mercury, Artemis, and Gemini. Each team will collaborate every day in class. And often they are collaborating on a, on a, on a group authored Google Doc. And you think about the power of that technology to bring all writers up. They will see how a stronger, more skilled writer in their group will craft a sentence, and they can use that themselves. So when I see solo writing from my students, often I often I'll, I'll see some real disparities. But when they collaborate, which is about half of their writing, it not only brings up their GPA, but it also teaches those methods to the students who are still struggling with fundamental skills. Th- this is an amazing, effective of both having a, an educated peer, and sometimes the writing consultant will come in and help with those processes. But it, it's an amazing effect of having an educated peer work alongside you. And technology just empowers that. It's also so real life, isn't it? Uh, sorry, Brian, just one quick point. It's also so real life because, I mean, later on, unless you're a novelist, I think that's, or a poet, I mean, you're going to be writing collaboratively. And even some of them write collaboratively nowadays. Yeah, I'll I'll put in a plug for Fran Wilde, who just won the Nebula Award, and she's a personal friend. Um, Actually, before she got famous as a science fiction writer, I I did an academic article with her. So I've been following her work. She writes enormously in collaboration with other writers. She doesn't do a lot of co-authored stuff, but these science fiction writers share their work with each other. And there's a small, tight community, much like writing centers where they will bounce ideas off of each other. And even though another writer won't write a chapter for Fran, she's, she's doing this in a community of writers. And, and I, I, I keep trying to break my students of the idea that a writer is a genius who goes alone in a garret and comes down with Kubla Khan. I don't even know that Coleridge did that. But that's, that's a model I, I like to get beyond and say, you know, writing excellence requires, who said this? James Berlin say that? Um, I don't want to mis, 
misquote someone, but but real excellence requires the presence of others. Yeah, yeah I think, that's uh, really Brian, what I, I, think what I, I was going to. Yeah. No, that's exactly what I was going to comment on is the importance of that word collaborate because that's really at the crux of what we do at Writing Centers. It's all about collaboration. And I think, you know, a dynamic space like a learning center or a library is so great for that because I could see great value in a writing center being in a library because perhaps a student is working with a research librarian on developing a research question uh, that they're going to be working on, but then they realize they need to get a little writing help on that or vice versa, you know, because we already have a good uh, referral system between us and our librarians. Uh, but if that librarian or writing consultant could walk the student down to the other service right in the same building, that's that's pretty pretty fantastic, yes. you know, and really stresses how collaborative, the, how the importance of collaboration and what a powerful tool it is uh, because, you know, yeah, we don't in real life, we do collaborate all the time and it's going to happen more and more. And I think one of the great things that's come out of the pandemic is that it shows that we can do that from anywhere. You know, uh, we've been very successful trans uh, translating our services to exclusively online uh, several times in the past year. Right. Right. It was a very <laughs> um, quick transition. And we're going to, yeah, and we're going to use that and learn from that and take that as we move forward. Uh, that that quotation a- was Hannah Arendt, by the way. I, I use technology to double check that because I said, I don't think that's James Berlin, although he probably said something similar. But I want to just say Brian nailed it there, that the library becomes a place for deep collaboration and a place for excellence. And some some universities use the word student success or even excellence in describing their learning commons. Now, speaking of learning commons, um, an interesting point that I found there, and this is a great opportunity to talk about tutoring techniques, was uh, the difference between the writing tutors or uh, the subject tutors, as they're called, so a, a tutor for economics or English even, or physics or whatever it might be, and their approaches. This comes up in Maria Young's uh, chapter, where she says that uh, Many of the, she goes through in a number of uh, lists of the sorts of negotiable points and non-negotiable points when a writing center gets taken up into a learner's common. Um, But this was one that I found really needed emphasizing, perhaps for our listeners to really get what it is that a writing center is about. Uh, Would one of you or both of you perhaps uh, give a brief sort of description as to how those two tutoring techniques would typically, let's say, I'm obviously we're generalizing, but typically differ? It's going to be different in both of our campuses. Brian, how, how do you work with your academic skills center? That's what it's called on our campus. Yeah, ours is, uh, we, it's called the Campus Learning Center, and it's uh, tutoring, content tutoring, um, supplemental instruction, and as well as academic coaching. And we work very closely with them. You know, uh, we're all, we all fall under the umbrella of student success, the student success unit at VCU. So, uh, we do a lot of collaborative workshops uh, to reach at-risk students, uh, as well as to reach students before they even get to us. So students who have uh, registered for their first year, first year semester at uh, will have collaborative workshops and events over the summer, you know, to get them sort of started on the right track, you know, and to let them know of the different resources that are available to them. 
It's a little different for us. Um, I'm good friends with our director of academic skills, but we just have a, an agreement about referring people to each other. They handle time and stress management. That's not does not require, say, our counseling and psychological services. They handle uh, they they do some coaching on reading. They certainly do the subject area tutoring. And the understanding is, if it's writing, send them to us. The one area we've negotiated is sometimes they have a foreign language tutor who can help in writing where we don't have someone on staff with that particular language. But it's been because we're small. Uh, We rarely do formal collaboration other than we do some orientation events every year for incoming students. But the understanding is that if it's writing, it comes to the writing center. And we are very much a critical thinking center. We've we've convinced our faculty over the years that, that we will do proofreading, but we really have to have direct authorization from a faculty member to do that because we have a very strong culture of an honor code. Uh, I, I teach my consultants, if you're writing sentences for the writer, you, you might be guilty of an honor code violation, and, and that can lead in worst cases to expulsion from the university. So we, we talk about critical thinking, developing uh concept saying what you want to say. And the Academic Skills Center understands that. But if a student is having trouble with understanding fundamental concepts of how to write like a historian or how to understand data analysis in a social sciences paper, we're going to send them to a subject area tutor at the Academic Skills Center. This brings up a really uh, interesting point that comes up in the Moving on to part two, the um, Swedish Writing Center that was highlighted in in, in that the yes. Writing Center and the uh, and the writing program there, um, and they use non specialist tutors, and some non specialist tutors were, in some cases, ex- uh, not complaining, but. Uh, citing challenges, basically being able to help perhaps uh, the writer in that particular discipline, but others uh, were also, and the writers themselves were also citing the advantages because being put into a position to have to explain yourself to someone from outside your discipline was putting many of these writers also in the position of seeing how much of that they really understood. I think all of us have had the experience of running along with the jargon and it all matching up puzzle piece wise. But when we, you know, tried to match it up with the box picture inside of our head to see what we were really thinking, it wasn't quite the right thing. Um, Just as you said there, Joe, uh, the basic idea of the critical thinking is to be able to say what it is that you want to say and how often, even deep inside of our disciplines, do we not really quite grasp that, right? I, I wish this podcast were available tomorrow morning because I'm going to be bringing my writing consultant via Zoom to the space race class. And you have said exactly what I've explained to my students. I think you did a better job that her name's Raven. Raven does not know a lot about the space race. And because she does not know the content, the writers have to become the content experts and they have to avoid summarizing for the primary audience, which is me, but to provide enough support to make their claims make sense. And that's where Raven, as an outsider, is a perfect audience. Because I'm reading, I also, I'm reading their papers partly to grade them. She's not. She's looking to make sure the arguments make sense. The evidence is not excessive. That's where a, that's where a non-specialist tutor can do wonders. Yeah, agreed with that. You know, we... Um... We would call all of our, we call our writing tutors, writing consultants. Um, 
and we would consider them all generalists. And that's because they are bringing, as Joe uh, suggested, the the writing expertise. You know, they know what good writing is, regardless of the discipline. And we train them on working with, you know, very specific types of writing, like scientific writing or whatever. Um, but I, I look the point of if a non-expert in a field can understand a piece of writing, that's a good sign, you know? So that's often, uh, what we utilize in the writing center, you know, like tell us what this writing is about, knowing that we don't know anything about the subject. And it helps a student to really hone in on clarity and articulating their ideas in a way that uh, will best suit readers in general. And that's, that's a really valuable tool when you get into the professional realm, you know, because, uh, you know, you might, you, many people might be writing very specifically for engineering or something like that, but there are a lot of jobs out there that. Uh, students can succeed in if they have good general writing skills that can reach a wide audience. And this seems to be one of the hurdles in writing in the discipline programs uh, on two sides, on the side of the writing professionals coming in and let's say lacking a certain level of confidence because clearly they're out of the disciplinary disciplinary waters. But on the other end, inside the discipline, let's just say biology as an example, so we can use it to refer to um, the biologists themselves then thinking, okay, well, I mean, I know my experimental procedures and I know the results that I've obtained and I can read all the figures right here. Any other expert is going to see what it is that I see. You know, what what does this man or woman here really have to offer to me? What is their expertise, that immediate doubt, which is something that comes up in many of the chapters, this unconfidence on the one side and also the doubt from the specialist side. So, I would even go so far, Brian, as to add to that, very much so I agree, in the professions, the ability to communicate across all kinds of boundaries or borders makes sense. But even deep inside of a specialty area, um, really actually capturing what it is that you mean to say. One, one brief example, I teach a lot of biologists, which is why the example isn't entirely random. Um, in one specific area, one subfield, I heard lots of my postdocs saying to me, yeah, but these are the three sentences in some variation or other that all these articles start with. I think they have to. Right, <laughs> and, right. And, and, my, and now I'm talking about, you know, articles that get published in Cell or they get published in scientific reports. You know, I mean, these are proper research articles. And I think, but that can't be if these people are really thinking about what they're saying. And, 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 the peop- and the postdocs that I'm teaching are saying the same thing. You know, now that you've talked about it, I actually am wondering why they do that. <laughs> well, the best-selling writing textbook in the United States is called They Say, I Say, and I teach with it. And it, it lays pretty bare the templates that we use in academic writing. And so that is teachable and also the variety. So you don't always use the same template is teachable. And I think that's what a writing expert can bring to bear, even in an advanced discipline where they, they have no idea what beta amylase is or um, time dilation in a paper about relativity. They still can say, wait a minute, you've used this transition seven times in 300 words. Let's work on that. 
Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the other things, uh, and, and this comes up in uh, Vasiliki Korbani's uh, chapter, which, which is also fascinating what she has to say about technology, um, and perhaps we can get back to that. But she says also this idea of getting learners to unlearn previous practices. And that's been something, I mean, that's at the heart of a writing center. It sounds weird, unlearning <laughs> as being at the heart of a, light, a, rent, uh, a writing center. But I mean, a writing center, as we've been saying, is a critical thinking center. So, I mean, the first step in criticism is to question everything. And many people approach writing, and I'm thinking also of high-level researchers, even at my own institute, as merely a task. And if that's your approach, yeah. You're you're never actually really going to engage with it and see what it does for you and what you need to do in it, right? Yeah, we really encourage students at VCU uh, in the writing center, but also in uh, a, we have a full department that's for first and second year writing and critical thinking uh, development. We really stress the importance of inquiry in writing, you know, to start with a question rather than an answer. You know, uh, I personally, in my own writing classes, stress the importance of how writing is really an act of exploration. And I think, you know, you were talking about the unlearning what you know before. Another thing that we always stress uh, at the Writing Center is uh, to help students understand their own unique writing process. You know, and it's going to be different for everybody based on their experiences, their skill sets, their discipline, et cetera. Uh, but really thinking hard about what it is you need to write, you know, whether it be the environment or the actual tools, you know, do you, do you prefer your laptop or actually many people prefer to at least start writing uh, in a notebook, you know, that sort of thing. But to really understand where you're at in your writing process and, how you might be able to tweak it to make it more efficient. And usually that leads to you feeling more confident about uh, your writing process and even starting. Cause you know, we know that one of the hardest things to do with writing is to actually get started on a piece, you know, um, and students say that all the time. So um, I think the unlearning aspect uh, and then relearning maybe um about your process can be can be so powerful. Yeah, I think relearning is a good keyword. I mean, that reminds me in uh, Lawrence Cleary's uh, uh, contribution to uh, to the collection, where he speaks about uh, Ireland, and um, I was always, uh, I mean, about a year or so ago when I came across this, was quite fascinated by the fact that, I mean, how American the idea of a writing center is, and he just proves it again, Ireland, uh, an English-speaking country, predominantly English-speaking country, and um, basically only being in the game some 15 years now, he he sees also his work, and surely rightly so, as as being an initial impetus in that area. But in any case, he, he says on this topic of unlearning, relearning and learning, he says that it's it's such a pity what happens in secondary education. And I'm sure uh, Joe and Brian, both of you can uh, speak on this topic, um, where the, the critical thinking skills of mid to late teens, and he cites studies where precisely then the development of higher order cognitive functions are at their are, are peaking, are moving in a new direction, right? This is a critical five to six years. 
are not really being challenged and not being developed because of the lack of writing and because of the rote learning that is so typical of absolutely absolutely that's 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 the biggest problem i identify in u.s students lawrence and i have talked about this and i don't know if i'm relieved or depressed to realize that it's also a problem in ireland I tell my, my writers in my first year class, and I tell my consultants when I'm training them, your job for 12 years in the United States, because we're a selective university, has been to get into a good college. That's not a preparation for doing well in college. You've, you've been taught to the test in many cases. You've been taught a reductive five-paragraph essay form. You've been taught to game the language to do better on these standardized tests. And that's why in my first year seminar class, I had three Fs right out of the gate. For 18 students, I had another three who had D's. That's a third of my class got D's or F's. And I'm a tough grader, but there were only three who had A grades. And what made those grades, and these were small, I call them low stakes, high data responses to get them ready to write a major paper that's worth 30% of their final grade, yet is no longer than these short responses. When I sat down to my students, and they weren't very depressed about it, because I said, if you do poorly on the first one, that's okay. You do poorly in the first three of these short responses. We got to talk, but they're learning. And I said, the problem here is that the students who did best understand critical thinking. They start with a question. They decide to on a focus early. They're not just trying to think in terms of the, the rigid five paragraph structure and having a pat, but uninteresting governing claim for the paper. I said, if that's how you learn to write, I'm going to help you unlearn that. And I use the word unlearn. So for American first years, which is where my interest in writing really focuses, that's the biggest problem I see is the lack of sustained attention to critical thinking. And I'm not just going to blame the high schools because I work with a local high school called Deep Run, and we've got a program on this. And they're a selective high school, all college-bound kids. Those students often struggle with those very issues. Yes, they can write a beautiful sentence, but it's empty. It's not a claim worth making. It's not a question worth asking because it's safe. They're not taking the intellectual risk that critical thinking mandates. I'm done. That's my that's my sermon. <laughs> well done, though. Well done. <laughs> and I like the idea of mandates. Um, uh, entirely true. I can give a very brief perspective of uh, how I've experienced it here in Germany. I've been here close to 20 years now, and uh, my daughter is going through the uh, German education system. And... She uh, brings home to me uh, the sorts of assignments that they're doing, and they would resonate with what you're just saying there, Joe. Um, This writing to form, the Germans have more than just a uh, five-paragraph structure. They have a number of different, uh, three, four different structures, but the structure stands up in front, and you just fill it in, and you're judged on the structure. And that is, yeah, I mean, it's just poisonous to... uh, critical thinking and real thought. And then up at the university level, it continues. And this is one of those things that I found uh, coming from America when I went to the German university that I uh, was quite surprised at. We can say what we want about America, but there is, let's say, at least a diffuse culture of writing in America. I don't remember how many times during my education from middle school on up where somebody told me, well, learn how to write and that'll serve you well. Learn how to communicate and you'll, you'll find a job. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can't tra- you can't translate that idea into German. The 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 counterpart in German would be attain the proper qualifications and get that job. <laughs> and, um, and 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 what they actually have as a typical writing assignment at the university 
It's called the Hausarbeit, uh, which is kind of like homework, actually, if you translate directly. But it, it was originally conceived as a writing to learn exercise. What it has devolved into since forever is basically a form that people fill in and walk away from without having really engaged with the matter. Yeah, so we've got the Irish perspective. We've got a brief look at the German perspective. You very uh, give us a very founded and grounded view of the American perspective. Uh, I mean, there seems to be some trouble, if not at the university level, then certainly at the high school level. Well, the Hausarbeit in the United States would be the AP essay in which a student analyzes Lady Macbeth's role in Shakespeare's play. Well, that's an interesting exercise, and it's certainly a good play, but it doesn't it doesn't involve too many intellectual risks, and it, it, it leads to formulaic writing. Yeah, and I find a lot of times, you know, in high school writing, students know that their teachers have a specific answer they're looking for, right. you know? Um, so it doesn't even really give them much opportunity to explore if they want to. I've had students come to me and say, well, you know, I tried to write what I wanted to write about and to take it in a different direction. And I got marked down for that because it, it didn't answer, um, give the answer that the teacher was looking for, even if it was something like literary analysis, That's tragic. you know, That's tragic. which is so so open to interpretation. But a writing you know? center can't really address all of that. If faculty are teaching that way, that's not a writing center problem. That's a larger institutional problem. Uh, so I begin my writing class. One of the first things I teach them is I say, I want to buy a statement. And they look at me like I'm crazy, which I am a little crazy. And I say, how do you really feel about this topic? Does it bore you? Does the book we've read, does it bore you? Do you think space travel is a waste of time? And so in my space race class, one student said, yes, I think sending people into space is a complete waste of time. And I said, bless you, son. I disagree with you, but you keep that bias in mind as you write. You have to work against it because you're writing to a certain audience who's a space enthusiast. That doesn't mean you have to drop your bias, but you want to be able to distance yourself critically from your own biases, as I do when I write about space, because I, I write professionally about it sometimes. I have to put that space travel zealotry behind me and write in a more objective manner. And still have my voice present. And by using that sort of language, they get it. It takes a semester or more. But it's unlearning all those habits from high school that says, what does the teacher want to hear? What's the right answer? And for even something like Macbeth that's been analyzed to death, interpretations of, of Shakespeare's plays are going to change with the times and with new methods of critical analysis. I always ask students, how, how do you feel about what we read? And they kind of, you know, when they're first getting to know me early in a the semester, they kind of look at me like, excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, I was like, I want to know how you feel about this. It, and one of them, there was one class in particular that they, they just couldn't get past how foreign that was to them. And one, so I was like, come on guys, you know, you, you've talked about other things. How can you can't talk about this? And they're like, well, we're used to tell you we're used to teachers telling us how to feel about a particular piece, you know? Uh, so it's kind of weird for us to be able to do that. It's like, well, you can disagree with me. I want you to, you know, I have, I might have my idea about it. And if you say something that's completely opposite, that would be fantastic. You know, that's, that's where productive conversations and critical thinking 
happen. And then those can translate into writing. Hopefully. When I spent more time at the English department than in the biology department, as I knew it nowadays, I had some interesting classes. One was on uh, Samuel Beckett. And uh, then I found it quite helpful to do just the sorts of things, uh, Joe and Brian, that you're talking about to ask what if questions. So for example, well, what if Godot showed up? <laughs> and, and 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 the initial response was this is insanity i mean this is crazy what are you asking but of course a half hour later of discussing we realized what you know what else was in this play which appears to have absolutely nothing in it yeah just by this what if question you know um, but this seems to this reminds me a lot of what uh, uh, Gert Breuer is talking about and w- what he's complaining about, speaking about the Hausarbeit and and the portfolios, which is something that he works with very closely. When he says that if a task lacks authenticity and if it's not clearly designed, then writers are going to walk away from it clueless and unmotivated. And if you've got high school students who are pretty much just not looking at the writing task, but at the teacher, just trying to, you know, on their radar, pick up, well, what's the right answer? What's the right answer? I mean, there's no authenticity in that. Uh, I mean, you might not even, you might as well not even write the text, right? Garrett is 100% correct, as are you. It's it's an empty exercise. Uh, Keith Yortsoy from Cornell calls that sort of writing an empty formality. And we see a lot of empty formalities with admissions essays, with test essays, and we see it in the first year. Oddly, it seems to vanish when students get some passion for their topic in the major. They really, by their third year at my school, start becoming aware of their own voices if they're in a field where they do a lot of writing, and they start to write with some nuance. They start to be engaged, and that's magic, but it's, it's, I'd like to get it started early. Yeah, and speaking about early, one uh, in, in a late chapter, um, the the one um, by, yes, from uh, Writing Center to Writing Program in Transdisciplinarity uh, by Greer Murphy et al. Um, that idea of starting early was put really into practice. I was quite fascinated by the nine-course pre-matriculation program that they have where people are writing already in their discipline. The International Scholars Program, as it was called, for me, it, it came across as a complete reevaluation of what the knowledge of a field is. It, it, it put the, let's say, traditional sets of data and content and knowledge that, you know, let's say, again, the biologists would have called biology and said that the writing of it, right, is just as important. I mean, writing and knowledge stand hand in hand in that program. Theirs is a theirs is a ideal model. I will say, as a pessimist, that it would have no chance in hell of passing our faculty. We um, who would who would probably say that's a great idea? Who teaches the courses? Uh, where do you sustain it long term? That's that's a question we've had as we reevaluate FYS. We are struggling to have teachers to teach those sections. We do not want to bring in adjuncts. So we're looking at a new general education overhaul and it's in draft it's up for uh, there's a meeting a big meeting about it on friday and the problem becomes if you have nine requirements how do you staff those courses how do you modify courses in the majors to meet them and so we are looking at that very issue and it's and it does involve with what they those authors call transdisciplinarity 
it's a wonderful concept, but we have to recognize the facts on the ground where stu- where universities are resourced differently, resources are contested, uh, public support may be declining. How can we accomplish this, if necessary, on a shoestring? Or can it be accomplished at all on a shoestring? Or should we say, no, writing and a few other fundamentally transformative skills are at the center of what it means to be a well-educated person, and we fund them at the expense of other things? including maybe faculty raises, which really gets you into trouble. <laughs> I'm not, no, I'm not either. One. I'm not either. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, okay. I mean, it's an ideal uh, program it, it, in one place. Uh, it, it certainly is, 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 is worth, um, let's say, discussing. But yeah, n- not when it gets to faculty raises, no. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or the number of senior administrators that have overpopulated I've gotten in trouble for saying this. I said every senior administrator should teach at least once a year, including the president uh, of the university, the provost. They should all teach one class a year so that they know what it means to be in a classroom with students. These are people who've taught before. Have them teach again once in a while. And that really brings you down to earth. I come from a background of uh, educators. My father, my sister, my wife, <laughs> all of them. And my father, who was uh, for 35 years a public schools teacher in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, he um, finished out his, his long career for five or six years in a pilot program of the local university. And the principal was, Joe, just as you're saying, also a teacher. David. Good, good. And he said it was the first principal who understood what was going on at the school. <laughs> So, yeah, I bet. <laughs> so, I mean, there is a lot to be said for that. I mean, why would you? It, this brings me back to a, an initial question I had wanted to squeeze in but couldn't find the place for. So, I suppose I'll, I'll bring it in now. It's, it, it's a theme that runs throughout the book. Um, uh, Sh- Sha- Shireen Grogan? Uh, sorry. I yeah, that's, her. That's, that's her. Yeah. Sha- yes, Shireen Grogan um, is, is one where it comes to a real head for sure. But um, you, can, you can hear the story going on throughout everyone's um, experiences. And it seems a bit of a naive question, but it's worth perhaps going through. Why is it that there's always this dissonance between the teachers on the one hand and the administrators on the other? It's, I mean, it seems to be certainly more of a more than just the typical, you know, you don't like your manager thing that goes on in, um, you know, m- most workplaces. It seems to have another layer to it. I, I was understanding, and and this shows up, uh, uh, Brian, for instance, in your short uh, blurb at the front of the book, and it shows up also in uh, Maureen McBride's chapter, is it has something to do with the passion, particularly of writing center practitioners and the way that they seem to so clearly identify and throw themselves into their work and then you get from above top down something sent to you yeah and it just makes yes. no sense at all i call <laughs> you know, it, it just... the i call it the initiative du jour <laughs> and we get a we get a we get there, a new and... center for something uh yeah. I, i'm i'm going to get yeah. i'm going to get in because trouble if i say the... more so i'll hand it over to brian <laughs> well i think that's a good point, though, because it's it's sort of like I have a friend who always calls it the the shiny thing syndrome. <laughs> That's it. You know, you you see something shiny and new, and you're like, ooh, <laughs> you know, and it's very hard to draw your attention away from that shiny new thing, you know. Um, and I think it comes from a place of 
education, not just writing education, but all education does need to evolve to, you know, meet the, the new needs of an, the different generations and technologies and stuff like that. So I think it comes from a good place, but sometimes things can, that are important, maybe feel like they're getting left behind or don't feel as valued anymore when maybe they truly are, but it's just that something shiny is, you know, taking I'll, the I'll give you an, a concrete example from my own research past. I, I did three peer reviewed articles about virtual worlds, such as Second Life. And I helped edit an anthology that included chapters. You may remember Second Life. It was a, a, a virtual world where you could create content, you could build games, you could socialize. And no one really asked the hard question when, when all the tech experts on our campus had avatars and got me interested and I became an enthusiast for it briefly. No one asked, what's the return on investment here? What what does what are the affordances and what are the costs of this new technology? Well, by the time I began to write about it, all of our technologists had moved on to the next new bright, shiny thing, which was mobile technology. And now they've moved on to something else, I'm sure. And I'm not critiquing my technologists because they do a lot of really great work. But we have to think back to fundamentals, which is what are the, and in our case, what are the pedagogical affordances and costs of a particular technology, a particular new initiative on campus? If we don't ground everything in the pedagogy, we're going to get lost. This this reminds me of the quote that opened uh, Vasily Kikovani's uh, chapter where um technology takes center stage she talks about online tutoring if you're looking for a simple innovation if you're looking for a simple innovative solution then technology is not the answer but if you're looking for a tool to support collaborative learning environments then technology holds tremendous potential can you now, imagine can you imagine a world without zoom during the pandemic <laughs> i mean this was the elephant that was not in the room we couldn't when we were writing this our introduction and gathering authors COVID was not on the horizon. Thank goodness we have this technology. Our writing center would be shut at Richmond. We would do some email exchanges with students, but we couldn't meet them face-to-face without Zoom. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those changes, huh? <laughs> and uh, speaking about change and uh, also thanking both of you, you've been, uh, Brian and Joe, very generous with your time. I do have one last question I'd like to put you away. Uh, for both of you each, um, what's the next big change that you see coming? Brian, go first. I I think it really will have to do with the new normal that comes out of the pandemic and the ro- remote learning that we have done throughout this last year and will continue probably to do for at least the near future. So figuring, I, I don't know exactly what that's going to be, but I think it's going to be have something to do with um, adapting what the previous normal quote unquote uh, model was for writing centers and adapting it into this, the new normal uh, that definitely takes into account uh, technology on a broader uh, scale you know, and how we communicate, you know, does it, we can communicate face-to-face via technology. So does it have to be in person? Uh, One example from my own writing center over the last year, uh, we have done a lot of 
online Zoom group workshops. And group workshops are something, you know, that we've always offered in person. And sometimes we'd get 10 people. Sometimes we would get nobody show up to our uh what we thought were these really wonderful topics that students would benefit from. Now we have a Zoom workshop. We might get up to 80 students uh, or actually 80 participants, mostly students, but there also, also might be some faculty and staff in it too. And that's not something that happened a lot. So I think it showed us that there's real potential in that particular uh, arena of the work that we do. And I think to me that shows that there's potential to learn a lot from what we've done well in this very challenging past year. Brian, that's a, there's my optimism there. That's a, that's a, that's grounded optimism. And I think it's something I will do on our campus. Once I have the breathing space, Uh, that's a post pandemic opportunity to begin to host some workshops and use zoom because then faculty can attend them from home Students don't have to trek to a, a room that we have to book. So I think our writing, our writing workshop program is going to move to Zoom, and I can bring in outside experts. We've had Fran come to both of our campuses. Now she can be at her home and join us remotely. We have to work out the honorarium for her, but that's another matter. I, I guess I, I'll add on to Brian's commentary with something that I see as a longer-term challenge. There's several, and this is an opportunity. I've begun to research Grammarly. And I use it mostly as a plagiarism detector. But I also, I started noticing how it influences our voice. I think these tools are going to become more sophisticated as AI evolves. And we're going to have students interact with them the way they interact with a thesaurus now, and they misuse it and they put in the wrong word. Writing centers are going to have to, and writing programs will have to think about how to in- integrate these tools richly since students are going to use them. And I think that's a that's a, a medium to long-term challenge. And what happens when we get stronger AI that it can actually write papers? Well, then we pack up. <laughs> yeah, we're done. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, very good answers. Um, that is Joe Essid and Brian McTagg and their edited collection, Writing Centers at the Center of Change, was out last year with Routledge. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Joe and Brian. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here at Scholarly Communication.